You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmas Warren in Washington, D.C. Good to be with you again, Prashant. How have you been? Good. How are you doing? Good. It's been uh, just a few days since I've seen you, I guess. Uh, I do want to apologize to our listeners for this hiatus in our podcast. I know the last episode we did was in early May, but there's been a little bit of traveling. And actually, uh, Prashant and I managed to find ourselves in Singapore just last weekend, where we were both attending the Shangri-La Dialogue, the Asia-Pacific's premier dialogue on international security issues, the regional security architecture that brings together uh, government officials, journalists, think tankers, scholars from uh, over 40, uh, 40 countries. And uh, it was really quite an experience, wasn't it, Prashant? I mean, especially especially this year with all the questions kind of looming over the future of the regional architecture with the, um, I guess, you know, we're about five months in now to the Trump administration. Uh, so, yeah, there was uh, it, it was quite an atmosphere. What did you um, what did you make of the setting at Shangri-La? I guess this is a question that really you can answer since you were actually there last year. Yeah, I think um, the, the the atmosphere, as you said, I mean, it was it was really set up for an interesting time because you have uh, you know six months into uh, the Trump administration, you have um, compared to last year, we're we're now uh, almost at one year after the arbitral tribunal decision on the South China Sea. You have the Chinese rolling out the One Belt One Road initiative, having done their summit uh, just a few weeks ago. And then, you know, as we discussed at the Shangri-La Dialogue and, and with um, the officials that were present there as well, uh, the attacks, uh, terrorism attacks in the Philippines, and then also while the dialogue was going on, actually, you know, the attacks in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was, um, you know, an interesting timing to see how all these various security developments, and then I should throw in also, obviously, <laughs> North Korea as well. Um, <laughs> right, who can really, forget? It, it, it really was, um, you know, a, a, to see all the confluence of these threats, but also interestingly like you know how these various countries depending on what their situation circumstances are how they're prioritizing these various threats and how they're thinking about solutions you know whether it's um, solutions that each individual country is taking um, regional sub-regional solutions um, and ones that include the US and China but also go beyond the US and China as well so. right no I, th- I, I think that's a great um, overview I think it really showed that you know dialogues like Shangri-La remain quite relevant given the p- persistence of so many um, security threats across the region um, I should also say that it was nice to um, you know meet a lot of fans of the podcast of the Shangri-La dialogue uh, so if anybody's listening and you uh, ran into either me and Prashant at Shangri-La we really appreciate your support and we hope you'll keep uh, listening to the podcast and find some value in our discussions here. Um, but Prashant, you know, um, one of the things that was also a lingering question mark just uh, with the Trump administration was the extent to which, you know, the administration is committed to Asia in the same way as its predecessor. And, uh, you know, one of the early signs that uh, was positive was that the Trump administration um, kept the tradition and uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis went. He delivered an incredibly highly anticipated speech on Saturday morning, uh, which I do want to talk over a bit with you. We've had about um, just uh, just under a week to kind of marinate on the ideas that he presented in that speech um, and also some of the related issues there. But, you know, also um, um, Admiral Harris from Pacific, um, from Pacific Command was there, uh, even though he didn't uh, speak on the record in a keynote session. Uh, he was involved in sideline meetings. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff was there. Um, and, uh, you know, there were other uh, U.S. officials from uh, Pacific Command and the State Department um, in, in the rooms as well. So that was um, a positive show of uh, presence um, at this uh, at this dialogue, and and when it comes to you know the U.S. presence in Asia, just uh, just showing up simply half the time um, does quite a bit of work. Um, but you know, on that note, I guess let's talk a bit about Mattis' speech. I mean, um, 
it's interesting to contrast uh, the expectations, I guess, that Mattis had going into this reassurance, this second reassurance toward Asia that involved uh, his stop at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, but also a uh, stop over in Australia to confer with another important U.S. ally. And I think it's important to contrast that, you know, with the uh, earlier visit in February to Seoul and Tokyo, which we discussed about on this podcast earlier, where at that time, you know, nobody really knew where things were going to go with this administration. And uh, Mattis was uh, correctly, I think, seen as kind of a bastion of continuity, foreign policy stability. He sort of understood the value of U.S. allies. He'd said that during his confirmation hearings. He went to Seoul and Tokyo. He said the right things. He was received well. His trip was broadly regarded as a success at the time and a show that things would largely continue. Um, obviously, since then, we've had um, a range of issues. I mean, you know, I should also point out when you were talking about the setting for the dialogue, uh, the, the Trump administration had just announced its withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord uh, just a day before, uh, which again raised questions about just broadly how far the United States can be expected to continue with what the previous administration had put into place. And I think in Asia, um, what we saw with Mattis's speech was that, you know, a lot of people were saying on the sidelines of the dialogue that this was a speech that Ash Carter could have delivered. There was a lot that was really familiar to kind of uh, watchers of U.S. policy in Asia and the region. And I think, you know, you concurred with that view in your, um, in your piece that you wrote for The Diplomat, where you kind of broke down his speech. Do you want to say a bit more? about that yeah I mean I, I think largely um, uh, you know I'd, I'd agree with that assessment because um, the when Ash Carter was uh, delivering his speech last year at the Shangri-La dialogue um, it really was kind of the sort of the summation or the culmination of you know eight years of the Obama administration po policies uh, towards the Asia-Pacific and you know he mentioned this um, was principal security network that was later, um, as you and I both noted, right, it was changed to the principal and inclusive uh, security network. Um, and that was essentially the sort of catchphrase for U.S. policy in terms of at least the Department of Defense's view. Um, this year, Mattis didn't utter the phrase principal security network or principal and inclusive security network, but essentially the approach that he outlined for U.S. policy was almost similar to what uh, Ash Carter was mentioning. I mean, obviously, there weren't really as much specifics or as much meat on the bones with mm -hmm. respect to new initiatives, um, but that wasn't a surprise because you know this is the first year um, of a new administration. It's their first Shangri-La dialogue, and as I noted in my piece, you know, it took three Shangri-La dialogues for the Obama administration to even outline the rebalance uh, to the Asia Pacific. So, right. and that was an administration that was fairly conventional <laughs> by U.S. standards. Uh, didn't phase a lot of these uh, foreign policy and domestic policy challenges that the Trump administration has, including staffing a lot of the, uh, the positions, uh, including Assistant Secretary of Defense, Assistant Secretary of State. So um, I felt that on balance, Mattis did a, a pretty good job um, in terms of outlining the U.S. approach, suggesting a little bit of continuity. But I, I thought one of the interesting things that came up in his speech was, I mean, he did focus a lot on North Korea, as, as, as people anticipated, um, as a clear and present danger for U.S. policy. But it was also pretty tough um, on, on the South China Sea as well. Right. Um, and he did, you know, have this uh, sentence in his speech about uh, Taiwan and, and the potential sale of de defense equipment, which some saw as foreshadowing uh, U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. So even as the United States is continuing to work um, with China on North Korea, as the Trump administration has indicated, I mean, it, it did seem to indicate that there is a sense that um, there's a more balanced approach being undertaken. And, you know, should uh, U.S.-China cooperation on North Korea not work out, or as we evolve later on to the administration, we, we could see a tougher line in terms of China policy as the administration begins to roll out some of these priorities in other areas. I think that was one of the key 
takeaways for regional observers at yeah. least. Um, the, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, I was just going to add one thing. You know, I mean, um, we've talked about this before. How um, North Korea has obviously kind of taken over the agenda. Um, I mean, really, when it comes to the just Asia Pacific policy, not only U.S. China relations, where the agenda has been largely seized, and uh, you know, the Trump administration seems to be somewhat under the impression that China is pulling his weight on North Korea right now, and uh, they've expressed a degree of satisfaction. The president has done that directly. So I think one of the things I wanted to see out of Mattis that I think I got was you know just uh, just a sense that the United States was still walking and chewing gum in the Asia-Pacific, that it was still thinking about some of the diffuse um, large picture issues, um, like obviously, you know, the phrase that kind of became meaningless by the end of the dialogue, rules-based order, uh, which I think I heard about, you know, 150 times in just the span of a couple hours. But, you know, Mattis did talk about that. He talked about kind of some of the bigger ideas. He talked about freedom of navigation. We heard some of the old formulations that the U.S. will fly and sail, where allowed under international law, which was, uh, you know, I think in the room, uh, you got a sense that hearing those things was a little bit comfortable, um, a comfort to uh, people. But, you know, I mean, as we got uh, to the Q&A after Mattis' speech, the very first question, um, I believe from Michael Fullilove of the Lowy Institute, was basically, you know, that's all fine and good. You said everything that you should have, but, you know, given what we've observed out of this administration um, and, you know, given incidents like Trump's staffers saying that he would affirm support for Article 5 of NATO, the collective defense article, and he famously didn't do that in Brussels, you know, why should someone like Mattis's words be really taken seriously when it seems like at any given moment um, policy is either made, you know, via uh, a raw interview transcript that's released um, of the president's <laughs> words or even a tweet, as we saw with this recent incident over Qatar? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and those questions, I think, um, really, I mean, by Sunday when the dialogue ended, uh, you know, I was still having conversations about Mattis' speech, and it really seemed like nobody had a good answer for that. Um, it was, you know, Mattis, um, for for all of what he did at the dialogue, Mattis really, you know, he goes back to the Pentagon and he keeps the shop running. He's a good kind of um, maintainer of that massive U.S. defense bureaucracy that's in place. But um, really, when it comes to kind of offering assurance that the Trump administration at the end of the day will do the right thing, you know, Mattis tries his best. He uh, evoked Winston Churchill. He said, after Americans have exhausted all options, they will do the right thing, which uh, elicited some nervous laughter around the room when he said that. But I don't think he succeeded in that in that core reassurance mission, which was that, uh, look, ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, you can count on the Trump administration to uh, to do the right thing. Um, I mean, what was your a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you're right in the sense that the Trump uh, administration and you know Trump himself didn't do Mattis a lot of favors by uh, withdrawing from the climate pact you know towards it 48 hours before uh, the Shangri-La dialogue I mean it really set uh, a lot of people um, up for frustration uh, regardless of what Mattis would have said um, I think there's there's also questions about um, US policy that that remain in the sense that you know you mentioned um, Mattis's uh, quote um, from Winston Churchill that, you know, the United States after exhausting all our other possibilities would eventually do the right thing. Um, I wrote, I noticed in my, in, in uh, talking to Asian officials and I mentioned one of their quotes in, in the piece, um, you know, they were sort of viewing that as, you know, kind of a symptom of U.S. arrogance, you know, in the sense that the United States always thinks that it has time to recover irrespective of uh, the silly things that it, it does initially, but the fact is with uh, China's rise and uh, the initiatives that the Chinese have undertaken, um, as well as the fact that you have so many of these security challenges um, sort of coalescing together and you have to deal with them um, almost at the same time. Um, th this idea that 
you can sort of have time for the United States to figure out what its policy is before getting to do the right thing is, is, is a little bit arrogant. And we're, we're living in a situation where the United States may have a little bit less room and less time to maneuver than might have been the case, you know, in the so-called sort of age of unipolarity after the, after the Cold War. We're not kind of living in that environment anymore. Um, so, so that was one, one, one aspect of it. And I, I think the, the other part of it that uh, Mattis um, can't really address but is a lingering question is the fact that under the Obama administration you had a clear sense that Asia was going to be a priority irrespective of what was happening in the rest of the world. Um, under the Trump administration, uh, we haven't had a clear sense yet as to whether that is the case. And you know, as one Asian official was saying, we're, we're sort of one war away from Asia not being the focus in the sense that, you know, Mattis's background is, you know, CENTCOM and, and in the Middle East, um, and the Trump administration has made the Islamic State and combating it a huge priority. And the Islamic State is a priority in Southeast Asia as well, but the primary theater for that is the Middle East. And if the United States gets more militarily involved in the Middle East, could we witness uh, another phase where the U.S. takes this one eye off Asia, um, and that provides a strategic window for China to ramp up some of these initiatives even further? Obviously, the United States can do both. I mean, it can focus on Asia and deal with these threats, but it requires the kind of strategic calibration that the Obama administration had and Obama had personally. I don't know whether we can expect the same thing from the Trump administration. No, I think you're um, I think you're right on that count. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've just noticed is that um, I guess even this podcast is evidence of the fact that just this year at the dialogue, um, it was the United States that was really in the hot seat, not China, right? I mean, last year, uh, like you said, the setting was um, quite hot. You had, uh, you know, Ash Carter's big speech. You had the anticipation of the um, South China Sea ruling. And uh, China was really kind of um, under under the magnifying glass. And this year, China was effectively a peripheral presence. I mean, part of it was just due to these uh, structural questions about where the U.S. is going. But also the Chinese um, this year um, sent a lower level a representation uh, to the dialogue, which uh, our colleague Shannon Tiezi has kind of dug into a bit, the reasons for that. Um, which uh, might not entirely be competitive. It might just be a product of kind of what's going on with the PLA's organizational reform to lead up to the 19th Party Congress. But really, this was a Shangri-La dialogue, primarily focused around the United States. Um, but, you know, Prashant, I think um, we should probably talk about some of the other things that were quite interesting that had really nothing or very little to do with the United States. Uh, you know, one of the big themes... Um, I mean, obviously, I guess, uh, you know, I should maybe start with uh, the Marawi City clash in the Philippines, which um, really kicked off just a few days before the dialogue and really thrust the issue of um, terrorism in Southeast Asia, I think, to the top of the agenda. I think if that um, clash hadn't really played out between the Philippine government and the Maute group, we haven't, we wouldn't have maybe quite seen the same level of attention um, in, in a lot of the plenary speeches, especially to the issue of terrorism. Um, so, I mean, you know, things were still quite fluid, um, on that count, but, um, there was, you know, we heard, um, speeches from uh, defense ministers from Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, well, not the defense minister of the Philippines, but a, a senior defense official and, uh, the Malaysian defense minister as well. Um, and all of them addressed, uh, these questions and, you know, there was, um, an unusual degree of focus on, um, the uh, trilateral patrols uh, in the Sulu Sulu SECs, um, which uh, obviously have to do with anti-piracy, but also uh, counterterrorism, as the Indonesian Defense Minister revealed. Um, many, um, almost all, actually, of the foreign fighters that were found in in Marawi City in the Philippines had actually crossed through the Sulu Sea. So I think that really uh, emphasized, uh, you know, the importance of that area in the South China Sea, which sometimes gets short shrift when it comes to um, 
U.S.-centered analyses of the region because uh, most of the attention tends to focus on the South China Sea. But, you know, as you've cataloged for us quite a bit at The Diplomat, um, that that area and particularly these uh, trilateral patrols are are turning into quite a significant example of kind of uh, minilateral engagement within ASEAN. Um, so, uh, you know, what was your um, what was your take on uh, how the trilateral patrol issue uh, really came up in the dialogue this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the increased emphasis on, on terrorism. I would say, I mean, even last year, there was a focus on the Islamic State as well. But this year, with, with the Marawi attacks, um, we really saw an, an unprecedented focus on, on terrorism um, among all the, the speeches at the plenary, not only by Southeast Asian states. I think many of the other um, extra-regional or, or regional uh, speeches as well, um, be it, you know, Russia, New Zealand, you know, any of the uh, speeches touched on terrorism as being a primary issue. And a lot of the questions uh, in response to the speeches also tried to delve into some of those issues. Um, and I, I sense, you know, um, my, my hope is that by next year we won't be talking about this as much, but I sense that, you know, it'll be as much, if not more, of a concern uh, because the situation in Marawi, um, from what we're getting the uh, sense from the ground in the Philippines, um, this is something that's been brewing for quite a while um, with the Islamic State's presence there. And, and actually, this is a big issue now for Duterte because, you know, having been from the south, the southern part of the Philippines himself and, and invested a lot initially in the future of the Philippine peace process in the south, he's going to have to deliver. And so that will be interesting to see. On the trilateral patrols, I think, you know, they, they were a focus um, last year as well. But definitely this year, um, a lot of the speeches address them as well, not only, as you pointed out, not only as, as an issue with respect to piracy, but also um, an important uh, example of minilateral cooperation with respect to terrorism, um, and also more generally, you know, with respect to maritime security. I, I asked a question during one of the, the sessions about whether this could be applied to the South China Sea as well, and, and <laughs> which generated a bit of a more cautious response from, from some of the ministers. Um, but I think, you know, this is an interesting space to watch in terms of how it evolved. Um, you know, the, the Malacca Strait patrols um, that were implemented uh, also within Southeast Asia in the 2000s, there was a discussion um, by the United States and some other countries whether this could also lead to include external parties as well. And unfortunately, that discussion, because of the way in which it was held, there were a lot of sensitivities about the United States' involvement there, as well as the involvement of other parties. But you're already seeing, I mean, there was a question from one of the Chinese participants um, about whether, you know, the, uh, China could be more involved in these Sulu Sea trilateral patrols. And the United States, um, as I pointed out before, um, has tried to get involved in these trilateral patrols as well with some of these exercises. So I think that's definitely an interesting space to watch in the coming years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, do you want to talk a bit about the North Korea issue? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that was one of the issues that, frankly, I mean, I thought that there would be a much greater emphasis, actually, on, on North Korea. And I think we, we discussed uh, at the dialogue, you and I, that had the terrorism incident uh, not occurred, uh, it might have been a relatively greater and more important focus by some of these um, officials. Um, but you attended the, set the one of the breakout sessions on uh, nuclear dangers in, in, in the Asia Pacific. I mean, what, what was your sense of uh, the discussions there? And you also wrote a piece um, following that as well. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the North Korea issue, I think, um, you know, like terrorism, it was almost involved, uh, 
um, mentioned in every single plenary speech, right? Everybody agrees that North Korea is a problem. Um, it's in violation of UN sanctions. It should stop testing its holistic missiles and nuclear um, and uh, abandon its nuclear program. But really, I mean, uh, my sense was that any of the government representatives that were speaking either publicly or privately, uh, no one really had any kind of good or innovative ideas um, about how this problem could really be addressed on a pan-Asian level, um, right? The questions really came down to what right. will the Trump administration do or what will China possibly do? Um, I, mean, I mean, what was interesting at the breakout session, though, is that um, uh, there was a uh, South Korean gentleman affiliated with the uh, Democratic Party uh, in South Korea, which, uh, you know, we have, we've had some questions about the extent to which the uh, new government led by President Moon Jae-in, a, uh, a liberal, will um, decide to pursue uh, engagement with North Korea. And, uh, you know, I guess my impression walking out of that is that there's probably a pretty uh, low ceiling to the level of engagement. I think uh, there's been a lot of kind of effusiveness about that idea that we might see something like the Sunshine Policy 3.0 under under Moon. And um, I've just been a little bit skeptical of that, uh, not only because obviously the international sanctions environment and even the South Korean domestic legal environment has changed quite a bit since the mid 2000s, uh, as we as we know, and obviously North Korea has come a long way in that meantime. Um, but also just the, you know, just the the state of affairs right now between the United States and South Korea um, and just broadly with the United States looking towards North Korea is quite different. Um, obviously, you know, the issue of the um, the THAAD system, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Missile Defense System that's been really controversial with uh, especially China also came up. Um, we had um, a, a Lieutenant General um, Yao Yunju, who's uh, a well-known fixture at the Shangri-La Dialogue, a former um, a PLA officer kind of give her um, her readout on why China opposes the system, which uh, actually kind of dovetailed quite well with the argument that I'd laid out in the diplomat earlier this year about why the Chinese perceived that to be such a problem. Um, technically, I wasn't convinced by the uh, explanation, which kind of focuses on the advanced Tipi 2 X-band radar potentially discriminating between uh, real Chinese strategic warheads and decoys. Um, but, you know, it comes down to the issue of strategic stability is what the Chinese said. Um, so, you know, there have been developments on that front since, right? Uh, just this week, the South Korean government announced that they'd be yep. suspending the deployment of additional THAAD launchers. Um, but really, I mean, you know, I guess I guess my answer to your, um, uh, I guess not an answer because you didn't ask a question, but just your impression that North Korea wasn't a bigger deal at Shangri-La um, didn't really kind of surprise me. And, you know, I mean, I expected everybody to mention it and everybody did mention it. But really, I mean, there's no there's no kind of good ideas, right? I mean, ASEAN states are notably uh, talking more about the North Korean issue, partly as a result of their own um their own anxieties about the issue. Um, I thought well, one of the things that was interesting about that leaked transcript of the call between uh, Duterte and Trump was that uh, Duterte actually brought up the issue of North Korea. It wasn't Trump, which I found a little bit surprising, right? I thought it was something that the United States was kind of shoving down the throats of uh, ASEAN states. At least that was the perception that kind of came out of, um, you know, when Tillerson hosted some of the foreign ministers in, in D.C. It really seemed like the U.S. was lecturing the region. But no, it seems like, you know, there's a, there's a degree of organic interest kind of across the Asia-Pacific about the North Korean issue. Um, but the only problem is that it really just comes down to um, waiting for the United States and China to, in the end, effectively, quote unquote, do the right thing, I guess, to quote Mattis. Um, but, you know, no one can agree on what that is at this point. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right on, on, on the North Korea front in terms of there being sort of, you know, we're, we're almost sort of engaging in uh, the sort of the same conversations because we know what the solutions might be, but it's it's really tough to actually get down to um some of these solutions just because the challenges, you know, remain uh, pretty constant, right, in terms of the the U.S.-China relationship, but also some of the regional dynamics there as well. I mean, I think the 
your your point about uh, North Korea mattering more for Southeast Asia is is, is interesting because um, you saw at least the Malaysian Defense Minister Hishamuddin Hussein sort of say in his speech very directly that you know we in Southeast Asia know that the North Korean threat is a problem for us too because you know obviously Malaysia experienced um, the attack at its airport right, um, early this year that was that was um, involving North Korea as well um, and I think there's a sense in the region as well, picking up on where the Trump administration um, has left off, that um, if they're expecting the Trump administration to contribute more in terms of some of the regional security challenges, um, one of the ways to engage the Trump administration is going to be North Korea, because that's perceived to be the primary uh, priority for the administration. So I think Southeast Asian states recognize they're going to have to give something on that. But um, as we talked about at, at the dialogue, I mean, it's not very clear what Southeast Asia's contributions could be with respect to North Korea, with respect to um, actual substance rather than some of the rhetoric that we often see in these ASEAN forums as well. I mean, Southeast Asian states, there really isn't much they can do uh, other than, you know, they, they do engage North Korea to some degree. The United States continues to say that they should kind of restrict uh, their engagement but it's obviously some reluctance there. Yeah, I mean, you so know, the, really the Philippines is, is the largest... Yeah, sorry. Um, I was going to say, you know, the Philippines is their uh, third largest trading partner. Actually, I think if you combine Philippines and Malaysia together, uh, they actually come in at about as significant as India, which is uh, North Korea's second largest trading partner. So I think it really kind of comes down to the issue of just, uh, you know, sanctions enforcement and engagement, which I think a lot of people argue could be better in, in the Southeast Asian region. Um, but yeah, you know, I think um, I, I think that uh, broadly, you know, nobody really has any good ideas at this point um, on the North Korean issue, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, they didn't actually test any missiles over the Shangri-La dialogue weekend. Uh, they tested on either either side yeah. of it, but not actually during the dialogue, which I found, um, I guess, yeah. polite of them, because I, I, I do tend to write about those tests when they happen. Um, yeah. One thing, yeah, one thing I guess we, we should mention, though, is um, since we did talk about uh, the, down, the downgrading of China's representation, I mean, one of the other interesting points that was brought up at the dialogue actually was um, India's lack of representation this mm -hmm. year as well. Um, what, what was uh, your sense uh, of that, particularly because we did have um, an address by the Pakistanis as well that got some attention there as well? Yeah, I think the Indian case is actually a little bit more interesting than the Chinese case in some ways. Because uh, in the Chinese case, I think there's actually a good reason to take the provided um, explanation at face value. Um, in the Indian case, there's the face value explanation in the Indian case is that the uh, defense minister in India, Arun Jetli, also happens to be the finance minister, which are two... Uh, gargantuan portfolios. And uh, Jet Li, truth be told, is more of a finance minister type. He's been uh, doing that portfolio exclusively since he um, handed it over to uh, Manohar Parikar, who then became uh, the uh, chief minister of Goa after the most recent state elections. And, uh, and Jet Li is now working hard on the uh, goods and services tax deployment, which is um, one of the most significant structural economic reforms in India, um, mm -hmm. really since independence, right? So, uh, so that's kind of the face value explanation for why India couldn't send uh, its minister. But, you know, that doesn't explain um, why there wasn't a um, representation at a slightly lower level, for example, similar to how the Philippines uh, sent an undersecretary. Um, yeah. The other explanation um, that I think, uh, you know, was being passed around at the dialogue was that the Indians um, ran into a few protocol issues with the Pakistani representation, um, especially because mm -hmm. uh, it was the Pakistani uh, chief of joint staff um, speaking at the, um, at the conference instead of a defense minister. And uh, I guess India wasn't 
really too happy about that. I guess, you know, I mean, India would never really send its own um, military representation just because uh, the civil military situation in both countries is quite different, to put it lightly. Um, so, uh, you know, I think um, I think there were also a, uh, a few questions there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it, it's a good point, especially uh, given that, you know, Mattis kind of quoted Prime Minister Narendra Modi out of the blue in his speech on freedom of navigation, yeah. of all things, which I found a little bit bizarre. Um, but there was kind of a sense that, uh, you know, India's uh, absence was being felt at this um, at this dialogue this year. So uh, hopefully next year, though, I think um, the organizers um, were, are expecting both uh, China and India to send a representation at the highest levels. So yeah. uh, that's something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Prashant, I think um, I think that's a uh, that's a wrap on the Shangri-La dialogue for this year. Um, yeah, unless uh, you got anything else. Cool. Well, um, thanks for joining me. And uh, like I said, we're sorry for the hiatus, but uh, I think we're gonna be uh, back and doing a lot more of these uh, throughout the summer. Obviously, a lot going on in the world, and certainly in the Asia Pacific. So, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast as always. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And if you have subscribed but you haven't left us a rating or a review on iTunes, uh, please do that. It really helps the show. Thanks for listening.